This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can open your word now. Thank you for your amazing words, Lord. Thank you, God, that we, that we can meditate and worship over what you have done, especially in the resurrection of your son. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. God, stand with us. Be with us. Walk amongst the lampstand. And let us behold your glory. Show us Christ. Show us Christ exalted. Show us the love of Christ. God, show us the power of Christ. God, open our eyes that we might see. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's talk for just a minute about the context of this passage. I just read to you this passage. Think about what's happened. Christ Jesus has already died for sinners like me and you. Christ has already risen from the dead and shown himself to eyewitnesses. He has already ascended on high to be seated as king of the universe. All this has already happened. And now the Holy Spirit of God has already been poured out. And his disciples began to speak in these languages that are not their own. Did all these people gather together in Jerusalem for the Passover? All these people gather together. They start hearing the praises of God in their own language. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And now Peter is about to stand up. And according to verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14, he's about to herald the gospel. Listen, but Peter standing up with the eleven raised his voice. And said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. So after the Holy Spirit has been poured out, Peter is about to herald the gospel. And what's going to happen? 3,000 souls are going to enter in. They're going to be ripped out of darkness and brought to the kingdom of light. And so what you have in verse 14 through 21 is Peter explaining, he's explaining, hey, this is what's happening. This is the reason that all these men are speaking in languages that they don't even know the praises of God. And then you get to verse 22 and you really get to the heart of his message. You get to, to the heart of what he has to say. And look what he says in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. I love that. The preaching of Christ. Listen to these words. And the first thing he says in the, in the meat of this passage is Jesus of Nazareth. He's about to preach Christ. This is about him, not about us. This is about Christ. Verse 22, just to give you kind of an overview, a, a plain sense of what's going on here. Verse 22, Peter preaches the God, affor God affirmed life of Jesus. God is affirming. That Jesus is the Christ by signs and wonders and miracles. And he says that right there in verse 22. In verse 23, we see Peter preaches the, the God-ordained death of Jesus. Look at that with me for just a moment. 
Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So think about what just what was just said. He just said Christ is crucified. And guess what? It's man's fault. He's straightforward about sin. He says, Christ Jesus, whom you crucified, this is the fault of men. And yet at the same time, he says, but God did it. But God did it. He says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And what this tells you is that Jesus's death was not just a murder. Jesus's death was not just a martyrdom. But instead, this was the predetermined plan of God before time began that a sacrifice was going to be laid down for sinners like me and you. This is deep stuff. This is Christ dying in the place of sinners like us. This is the wrath of God is supposed to fall on us. And yet it falls on him. Instead, he took your punishment. And this was the plan before time even began. In verse 24, we see Peter preaching the God plan resurrection of Jesus. So the one who died, according to the predetermined plan, is the one who is risen from the grave. And then the, and then the rest of this passage from verse 25 on is pretty much explaining out and giving you more and more of the implications of what it means that Christ Jesus has risen from the dead. So what you have in verse 25 through 28, if you're looking at the passage, verse 25 through 28, Christ is risen from the dead and Peter's going to point back to something that David wrote. In Psalm 16, to prove that he is risen indeed. And then verse 29 through 31, Peter's going to explain those words that David wrote in Psalm 16 and what they mean and how they, they, how they apply to the resurrected Christ. In verse 32, he's going to repeat it again and say, Christ Jesus is risen from the dead. And this time he's going to add a detail. And we are eyewitnesses to it. We are the witnesses to his resurrection. In verse 33 through 36, is Peter's going to do this. He's going to say, hey, since he has risen from the grave, this means something about Christ. And he's going to begin to tell you what it means. That he is the exalted king of glory who pours out his spirit and saves lost souls upon this earth. And yet, the, yet all his enemies are being gathered together under his feet. And so he explains this throughout the rest of his preaching. And finally, if you get to the end of verse 36... And you read past 36 and you see what happens next. You see the conviction of God. Christ Jesus has been preached. The resurrection has been preached. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit falls on people. And people begin to see their sin. And when he said, Christ Jesus, whom you crucified, they feel the weight of that, that he died for our sins. It's our fault. And they feel the weight of their sin. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And he looks at them and he tells them, repent. He tells them, repent. He tells them to come to Christ, to turn to the one who is risen from the grave. And the next thing you know, 3,000 souls, 3,000 souls, according to this passage, delivered out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. So here's some things I want you to see, okay? Some things I want you to see from this passage. In this passage, there's some different truths here, okay, that you see from this preaching of Peter about the resurrection. One is this. The Old Testament is the resurrection concealed and the New Testament is the resurrection revealed. And here's what I mean by that. That you can read about the resurrection of the Christ in the Old Testament. No doubt about it. 
and yet it's concealed in some kind of, it's, it's, it's as if it's, it's, uh, it's kind of hard to pick up. It's vague at times, and yet it's there. And then you get to the New Testament, and the doors are busted wide open that Christ Jesus has risen from the grave. You see it in, at the end of every gospel. Christ Jesus, the record of Him risen from the grave. In the book of Acts, it's the record of the people going everywhere saying, We saw Him, we saw Him, He's risen again. And then you get into the letters of the New Testament, and you see the spiritual importance, the spiritual significance of the resurrection of, of, of Jesus. And I just want to demonstrate this from Acts chapter 2, if you look at it. Verse 25, he says that Christ is risen. And I want you to notice, he points back to the Old Testament where the resurrection is concealed there. Listen, listen, verse 25. For David says concerning him. And that little passage that he quotes there is from Psalm 16. And this is the resurrection concealed in David's writings in Psalm 16. And think about this explanation in verse 29. Just think about it. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's telling you, listen, David, the one who wrote those words, he's dead. He's buried. His tomb is with us, which means the Holy One that would not see corruption is not talking about David. He is dead and his body saw corruption. Look at verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, so David being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. David knew God had promised him and sworn to him. That the Christ was going to come through him and sit on a throne. And verse 31 says, He foreseeing this spoke, in Psalm 16, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Just like it said in Psalm 16. So what you see is Peter pointing back to that place where the resurrection is concealed. And he's lighting up the New Testament. is lighting up the Old Testament for us about Christ Jesus being raised from the dead. You see it again in verse 34 as Peter points to David. For David did not ascend, in the, ascend into the heavens. But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So again he points to David. He says, David said this, and it's not talking about David. David is speaking about the Christ to come, that he would rise from the grave. And this is in our Old Testament. So here's something I want you to think about. In what way is the resurrection concealed in the Old Testament? One way you can see is in these verses in Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, just like Peter's quoting here. But let me tell you a major way this happens. You see, the, the Old Testament, which, which really is the best history of all, it starts from the very beginning and walks you through the history of this world. And what you see in the Old Testament is a constant unfolding of who this Messiah is going to be. Constantly, just progressively, all the way through the Old Testament. Who is this Messiah going to be? And what you see is it unfolds that He is going to be an eternal reigning King who reigns forever. And yet, He's going to be the one who dies. And you think, how do these two things go together? If Christ had not come yet, and I'm a Jew, and I'm reading through these Old Testament scriptures, and I'm thinking, this says He's the reigning one who reigns as King forever, and yet He will die. Figure it out. How does this happen? 
And what you find out is you know, you realize, if you're a student of the Word of God, that you realize that He is going to die indeed for sinners like me and you, but He's going to be raised from the dead. The resurrection is concealed right there. He'll be raised from the dead, and He will reign forever as the eternal King. Let me give you an example of that. Hebrews chapter 11. I want to give you an example of that logic. Hebrews chapter 11. This is about Abraham. Who was commanded to kill Isaac, his only begotten son. Verse 17, Hebrews eleven seventeen. 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the pro and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding, so what did Abraham conclude? Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. And so here's what you see. Abraham has two things before him. Abraham has a promise that through Isaac is going to come this seed. Through Isaac, it's going to, your lineage is going to continue on. And yet he's got this command to kill him. And you think, how is this going to work? And what did Abraham conclude? He concluded that God is able and will raise him from the dead. Now God stayed his hand. God stayed his hand. But, he, but here's what I'm saying you're supposed to see. When you read through that Old Testament and you know that, that, that the one who is coming, the Messiah, is going to die for sinners like me and you. That he's going to lay down his life and die. And yet he's also going to reign as king forever. What ought your conclusion to be? That he would rise. That he would rise from the grave. And this is what David knows. David wrote Psalm, 1, Psalm 16 knowing that he would resurrect the Christ from the dead. Now hear me out on this. I want you to think with me for a minute just about the unfolding of the Messiah through the Old Testament. Just think with me for a minute, especially focusing in on David, right? Because that's what Peter does here. He focuses in on the words of David. So think about this with me for a moment. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. All things created by Him. Heaven, earth, angels, people created by God. All things created by God. Man rebels against their creator. And you know that it's true, right? You know it's true. You see the wickedness in this world. You see the wickedness on your, in your own heart. You know that through one man sin entered the world, death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all is sin. And so man rebels against their creator. And just a few verses after we see in Genesis chapter 3 that, they, that man has rebelled against their creator, we get this promise from God. And the promise is that there's coming one through the lineage of Adam and Eve, through the lineage of them, that's going to crush Satan's head. There's coming one that's going to crush the head of the tempter. And there you have your first gospel, that we've rebelled against God, but there's coming one that's going to crush Satan's head. And now the rest of the Old Testament is going to unfold who this Messiah is. So you get into Genesis chapter 12, and you see Abraham, a descendant of Adam and Eve, and Abraham, and to Abraham is promised, through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. All the nations. So what do we know about the Messiah so far? He's going to crush Satan's head. He's going to bless all nations. You keep following out that lineage of Abraham. It traces it out for us in the book of Genesis to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And one of those sons is Judah. In Genesis 49 verse 10, God says to Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah. Meaning there will be a king forever from the line of Judah. So what do we know about the Messiah up to this point? 
We know that he's going to crush Satan's head. We know that he's going to bless all nations. And we know that he's going to be a reigning king. We know these things just from the book of Genesis. And then you come out of the book of Genesis and what you see is God's people, including Judah, that son through whom the Christ is coming. That those people were put into captivity, they were put into slavery in Egypt. And they grew into a nation and eventually God did, performed the exodus to bring them out of slavery in Egypt, including the people of Judah. And the line of Christ is preserved. And the line of Christ is preserved through Joshua's day. It's preserved through the days of the judges, the 400 years of the judges. And you're just coming through the Bible, seeing this history. And right at the end of the judges, you get the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is set in the time of the judges. And in the book of Ruth, what we get is the story about the birth of David's grandfather. And so his, so his grandfather is born into the world and he has a son. And then eventually he has a son named David. And at the end of the book of Ruth is the first time we hear of this man named David. And listen to the promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to the promise that was given to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. It's God speaking to David. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. How do you think this landed on him? That he knows that there's coming one that's going to crush Satan's head. That's going to bless all nations. That's going to come through the line of Judah. And David happens to be from Judah. In fact, from Bethlehem, Judah, David comes from Bethlehem, Judah, and God looks at him and says, a king is going to come. Through your seed, a king is going to come, and I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. He is going to reign as king forever and ever. This is the Messiah who's coming. And then all throughout the rest of the history of the Old Testament, we've got the tracing out of the lineage of David through the kings of Judah. All the way through the, through the kings of Judah. And some of those kings were wicked. Very, very wicked. And over and over again, you see God getting ready to destroy these wicked kings. And you know what he does? He preserves them. Why? And it's because he remembers that promise of to David. That there's coming a Messiah. There's coming a Messiah. There's coming a Christ. There's coming through the lineage of David. And so God spares him. In fact, go with me to first King, 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. Let me give you an example of this. Verse 18 and 19. This is about way down the line. One of David's ungodly sons. Listen. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Here we have a great, great, great grandson of King David and he's done evil in the sight of God. Will God destroy him? And it says in verse 19, yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David. As he had promised him to give him, a, as he had promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. And so here you see it. God is preserving the seed of David because the Messiah, the Christ it's coming through him. And then during all this history, all the way through, you have prophets that are prophesying about this Messiah that's coming. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the way down the line, they're prophesying about this Christ who is coming. Let me give you an example in Isaiah chapter 7. 
the prophet Isaiah, in the midst of this history, where God has promised a Christ, he says this about that Christ that's to come. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's a sign. How do you know when he's the one? He's the one from Judah. He's the one born in Bethlehem, this born of a virgin. This is the sign to you. And he said his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Meaning God Almighty took on flesh. And this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. A little bit later in chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah is still talking about him. He says in verse 6, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name. What's this, what's this child going to be called? His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Listen to this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David. Remember that promise? And over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. He will sit on the throne of David as the seed of David, as king forever and ever and ever. And this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. But here's the problem. The same Isaiah that spoke about this one to come. He continues to speak about him throughout his prophecy. And we see over in Isaiah 53 that it says that one that came to reign as king forever. He would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. His grave will be made with the rich at his death. He is going to die. So you say, how could this be? How could he die and yet be the reigning king? And the answer is in Isaiah 53. It says the Lord will prolong his days. He is going to rise from the. He's going to rise from that grave, and he's going to reign. As king forever. So I want you to see this. That all through the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament. We have the resurrection concealed there. The resurrection is concealed there. When you get to the New Testament. Doors bust wide open. Back to Acts 2 with me. If you're not there. Go back to Acts 2. Back to Acts 2. Here's something else I want you to see. Another truth I want you to see from this passage. Okay. We've seen how Peter's preaching. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. He's pulling that out. Specifically the promise to David. And now there's this pattern that I want you to see. There's a pattern developing starting right here in what we just read. There's a pattern developing in the book of Acts. And here's that pattern. The world changing gospel preaching. It displays the resurrected Jesus. Let me say it another way. Gospel preaching that turns the world upside down preaches Christ and Him crucified and Christ resurrected from the dead. This is preaching that changes the world. Here's what I mean. This gospel proclamation in Acts chapter 2 that we just read just a moment ago, it turned Jerusalem upside down. This gospel proclamation, it was, it was saturated with the resurrected Christ. You see that? Just saturated with the resurrection of Jesus. Peter did not just preach a historical Jesus. Historical Jesus who once died. Who once was raised. But instead he preached the resurrected Jesus. Who is alive right now. This is the one that he preached. And this is the one that turned the world upside down. And I want you to see that this is a pattern in the book of Acts. In other words, this keeps happening over and over again. 
Now I've got many, I've got some of you have those study guys. There's many verses listed out there in the book of Acts that you can go back and look at later. But for right now, I just want to mention a few to you. I want you to think about this. In Acts chapter 2, we've got the first gospel proclamation after the Spirit has fallen and it is saturated in the resurrection. In Acts chapter 3, verse 12 through 26, you have another one. You have another gospel proclamation. And I want to tell you again that it is saturated. I'm not going to read it right now, but it is saturated with the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, chapter 4, verse 2 tells you how the, the unbelievers responded. Being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You see what they're preaching? The resurrection from the dead. Look at Acts chapter 4 verse 33. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I want you to see this pattern. That there's, there's world changing gospel preaching happening in the book of Acts. And it has an emphasis which is the resurrection of Christ. Acts chapter 5 you get the preaching of Christ. Resurrection emphasis. Acts chapter 10 you get the same thing. Acts chapter 13 you get the same exact thing. Acts chapter 17. Turn there with me. Verse 2 and 3. Acts chapter 17 verse 2 and 3. We don't get the record of exactly what he said here, but I want you to just listen to this. Listen. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer, that's his death, and rise again from the dead, that's the resurrection, and say, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. This was his custom. This was his custom that he would preach the resurrected Jesus. You see it again in Acts 17, verse 17. Therefore he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue and the, with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So here he is going into the marketplace and going into the, the synagogues. And he's just whoever's there. He's sharing Christ with them. Look at verse 18. Then the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he did what? What was he preaching? He preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So what we see is over and over again, this emphasis. And I believe if you went back and did that on your own, that you just read through the book of Acts. And every time we get what's being heralded, every time we get what's being proclaimed, and you read this, you're going to see this constant emphasis that Christ Jesus is risen and alive. And all that begins right here in Acts chapter 2. So think about this. Why? Why, why in Acts chapter 2 would, would we haven't recorded what Peter said? Why not just say, he preached the gospel, move on, tell him what happened. Why record what Peter said right there in verses 22 to 36? Or why do that over and over again? Why keep saying, uh, stop, this is what Paul said, or this is what Peter said. Why keep doing that throughout the book of Acts? And, and here, here's the reason. Because the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of his death, the preaching of his resurrection is of massive importance. This gospel message is the message that carried in 3,000 souls on its back out of darkness into light. This is the same message that carried thousands more out of darkness into light in Acts chapter 4. The gospel message carries Gentiles in the rest of the book of Acts into the kingdom of God. This is the message. This is the message of the great awakening, right? This is, this is not just about great men that can do great things, but they have a great message that we still have right now. And this is the message proclaimed and thousands were saved. 
This is the message that has been proclaimed. And many people in this room have been ripped out of darkness and brought into the light of the sun. And so this message is of massive importance. And so therefore, it's recorded for us again and again and again. And notice the emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus. Notice that emphasis right here. Is this the message that you've heard? Resurrected Christ. Is that the message you've heard? Or, or let me, and this is, this is just for Christians in the room. Christians, is this the message that you preach? Do you preach resurrected Christ? Christians, we're commanded to go into our, our, our jobs, our schools, our neighborhoods, our families, into the darkest places on this earth. We're commanded to go into these places with the light of the gospel of Jesus. Do you preach Christ resurrected? Christ is Lord of all. Will you preach a three-step plan of salvation? Or a cute little message about how God has a wonderful plan for your life. Will you preach those little messages? Or will you preach Christ Jesus crucified and risen indeed? What do you preach, Christian? What do you herald to the lost world? Now let me just kind of change directions a little bit. Why do you think there's such an emphasis on the resurrection here? So in this gospel message... Now we see Peter preaching. Why such an emphasis on the resurrection? Here's what I do. First, I want to give you the evidential significance of the resurrection. What I mean by that is why is the resurrection significant? And it's evidence, it's proof. Verse 24, Acts chapter 2, verse 24. It says, whom God raised up. Speaking about his resurrection. Whom God raised up. And over here in verse 32, it says... This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Listen to the evidence of that. This Jesus God raised up of which we are all witnesses. So there's a sense in which Peter is preaching about the resurrection of Jesus as an eyewitness standing on a witness stand in the court of law. He's saying this is the evidence and we are witnesses to it. And you've got to lay hold of this. This is, this is massively important. That the resurrection of Jesus is proof. It's evidence. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says. He is the son of God. And he's declared to be that by the resurrection. Acts chapter 17 verse 31 says. He's given proof of this to all. Proof of this to all. By raising him from the dead. So why do you believe there's a God? Because Christ Jesus has risen from the grave. And he tells me there is. Why do you believe Jesus is God and Savior? Because of the resurrection. Why do you believe this book is God's words? It's because of the resurrected Christ. This is of massive importance. And here's one way I want to I try to help you see this. Okay, here's, I want you to do like a role play for a minute. Okay? This is a way I want you to try to think through the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Role play. Okay? So I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. You lived during the time that Christ walked on this earth. You're not a believer of his. You're not a follower of his. But you live first century Jew during the time that Christ walked on this earth. I want you to put yourself in that role for just a moment. Think about it. All around you, Jewish people, all around you, you live in Jerusalem. And all around you, there's Jewish people that are devoted to the God of the Torah, the God of this Old Testament. 
All around you, there's these people. These people are very smart, most of them. They're not just gullible people. They're not just, they're not idiots. They're not superstitious. These people are not easily swayed, especially not when it comes to their religion. And here you are in Jerusalem around these people. Now listen, nobody would deny that description I just gave you. Nobody. But from the most ardent atheist to, to the, a Christian, like nobody's going to tell you that's not true. That during the time of Christ, this was the situation. These Jewish people devoted to their Torah, devoted to their <laughs> Old Testament God, not easily swayed, not gullible. So here's these people. And then suddenly, a certain Jew arrives on the scene named Jesus. He's from Nazareth. So this, this Jew arrives on the scene and he becomes incredibly famous, not just in Jerusalem. And not just in Judea, but even among the Greeks, he becomes incredibly famous. And many people claim he's doing signs and wonders and miracles. This happened. Now listen, nobody would deny that. You might not really believe he did miracles, but you can't deny that he became incredibly famous. And people are claiming it all over the map that he's done these miracles and these signs and these wonders. Then here you are in Jerusalem, and one day that Jew... Christ Jesus, the one that you don't know what to think about. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. And he begins to do the things that you've heard of in the city in which you live. And he dies an incredibly famous death. Because he does it right in the midst of the Passover. When everybody's gathered together in Jerusalem. And everybody knows that this man was crucified. And everybody knows where he was buried in a tomb. In fact, it wasn't far from where he was murdered. You live in this town, right? You live in Jerusalem. You know where he was crucified in Golgotha, Calvary's Hill. You know that. And, and, in, and in walking distance from there is that tomb in which he was buried. He died an incredibly famous death. Nobody denies the things that I'm just telling you now. It's intellectual suicide. Even the, even the greatest atheists don't say that he didn't exist. He didn't die on a cross. He wasn't crucified. And it was a famous death at that. Okay, everybody is there. Just think about this scene. Think about this scenario. And so now you're a little disturbed about, by these events. You didn't know what to think about Christ. But you, now you think it's over. You think it's over, right? It's over. I mean, he died. He's dead. So it's over. I don't have to think about this anymore. And then suddenly, three days later, you begin to hear claims that Jesus is alive. That he is risen from the grave. And people begin to say, they begin to claim that they saw him with their own eyes. Eyewitnesses to Jesus walking on earth again after he had risen from the grave, after he was crucified. And then some days go by and more people say, we saw him. More eyewitness accounts and some more days go by and more people say, we saw him walking on earth again. And this continues to happen day after day for 40 days that he was seen by eyewitnesses. Next thing you know, about 10 days later, about 10 days later, after that 40 days, 10 days later, thousands of people in Jerusalem, where these people aren't stupid, these people aren't gullible, these people aren't easily swayed, and all of a sudden, thousands of people in Jerusalem are turning to this Christ Jesus, who all you know is He's crucified. They begin to turn to Him and worship Him as God and Messiah. And you think, why? Listen, nobody denies that that was happening. You might not think he rose from the dead, but this is what happened. Thousands begin to turn to him based off those eyewitness accounts that he had risen from the grave. And this disturbs you. You begin to think, man, what's going on here? 
I know these Jews aren't stupid. I know these people are not ignorant. I know they're not easily swayed. So it doesn't make sense. Why are they turning to the one who was crucified and worshiping him as God? Why are they doing that? Don't they know that they might be crucified too? So why is this happening? Could it be that he did what he said he would do? And you begin to think, first put yourself in those shoes and you begin to think, could it be that he did rise from the dead? Could it be that these eyewitnesses are telling the truth and that this is not just a bunch of hype? Could that be what's going on? And so here's, here's the thing. No one denies that these events happen. So these events happen. They happen, no doubt. But the question you have to answer is, why did they happen? Why did they happen? Did he really rise from the grave? Is that the reason that Christianity explodes in Jerusalem and thousands of people begin to bow down before the crucified one? Why did this happen? And so I still want you to have your mind in the place, role play, in the place of that first century Jew. And you begin to examine the evidence. You begin to think about the evidence that's there. Do you think the first thing you think of is the tomb? I know where he was buried. I know he's buried. I'm from Jerusalem. I saw him crucified. It's a famous death. Everybody knows where he's buried. And so you can actually walk and go to the tomb and get the body and prove all these Christians as idiots. Look, I have the body. He's not risen from the grave, but he couldn't do it. You know why? Everybody knows that the body's not there. The most ardent enemies of Jesus, all they had to do to squash Christianity was show a body. Just show the body of Christ. Where is it? And it's not there. And that's the first evidence that this first century Jew begins to examine. Second strand of evidence is this, the post-resurrection appearances. We just talked about post-resurrection appearances. Jesus appears. People see him. If it's just one or two people, maybe they're lying. But it's like this whole army of people. Even over 500 brethren at one time. They say, we saw him walk on earth after he was crucified. And you begin to wonder, is this true? And all these witnesses, are they credible? And so here's the thing that's not questionable. It's no, it's no question was the tomb empty. The tomb was empty. Now why it was empty, you need to decide. This first century Jew needs to decide. And it's no question that there were people that claimed that they saw him. There were many people that claimed that they saw him walk on earth again after he died. And thousands began to follow him because of it. There's no doubt about that. But the question you have to ask is, 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 is it true? Can I trust the words of these eyewitnesses? And that's your question even today. Can you trust the words of these eyewitnesses? And it's the question for that first century Jew. Can I trust their words? And so here's some things he might think. Put yourself in his shoes. Well, maybe they're just lying. Maybe they're just deceiving us. Maybe they're just lying, straight up lying. And then you begin to think, well, what's their motivation for lying? Why would they lie? These people are being tortured and killed and, 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 and ostracized. This is happening. They, they, these people are being kicked out of their homes. What is their motivation for lying about here? Imagine you were actually there, first century Jew, and you see one of the leaders of this sect called Christians, and he's hanging on a cross, Peter himself. Upside down, hanging on a cross, suffering and dying. And you think to yourself, that man believes he saw something. And he's taking it to his death. So they're telling the truth. They're not lying. But then you begin to think, well, maybe they were deceived. Maybe these men, these men who said these things, these eyewitness accounts, maybe they were just deceived. 
You think, well, that's nonsense. They're not deceived because they're not telling you that they saw a mystical Jesus. They're telling you we saw him. They know what he looks like. We saw his body. We saw his face. We spoke with him. Peter even says, I sat down for a meal with him. So it's not deception. And so were they telling the truth? Can you trust the eyewitnesses, the eyewitness accounts to the resurrection? And I'd say absolutely yes you can. They definitely saw something. And you put yourself in the, in the shoes of this first century Jew. And he says, man, they saw something. They saw Christ risen from the dead. And then you, you begin to turn to Him. You turn to Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior of all. The one that you worship. The one that you follow. The one that you obey. And next thing you know, you find yourself in a relationship with Him. And next thing you know, He's changed your heart. And next thing you know, He's changed your life. The sin you once loved, you now hate. The Jesus you once ignored and pushed aside, you now love him. And everywhere you go, you find yourself telling people, he's alive. He's alive. Christ Jesus has risen and he can save you. Listen to me. Everything hinges on the resurrection. If Christ Jesus is risen from the dead, you believe him. You trust him. Everything he said about himself is true. If Christ Jesus did not, you throw it all out the window. Let me give you a warning right here. Here's the warning. There are people that have believed what I just said to you. In a sense, they have believed that Christ Jesus resurrected from the dead and they are still in hell to this day. And here's what I mean by that. Let me give you a prime example. The soldiers are there at the tomb and at the tomb with those soldiers, an angel comes down pushes the rock aside with power. The, the, the soldiers are there bowing down in absolute fear before this angel. And the body's not in there. Christ Jesus has risen from the grave. And they go back to those Pharisees. And they say to those Pharisees, hey, here's what happened. And the Pharisees look at them and they say, you tell everybody that the disciples came and stole that body. And they knew it wasn't true. So here's these people that know, they know that he rose up out of that tomb and yet they don't turn from their sin and they don't put their trust in Christ and they go to hell forever. So because of that warning, I want to turn now to the Christological significance of his resurrection. Here's what I mean by that. The Christological importance of his res resurrection. What I mean by this is, is the resurrection tells you things about Christ and this is a big deal. Because of the resurrection, there are some implications about Jesus that you must know. And first, let's read chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Again, listen to this powerful statement. Powerful statement here. Whom God raised up. Think about your Savior. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held by it. It was not possible... It was impossible to hold down Jesus in those shackles of death. It was not possible to hold Jesus down. The wrath of God come bearing down on him instead of us. And yet it was not possible to hold him in that grave. That's our strong savior. It's a powerful statement right here. Think about him in his life. In his life, the weight of temptation towards sin fell down on him like we have never, none of us, all of us put together, have ever experienced in our life. And his back stood strong and he never sins. 
And yet our sin gets laid upon him at the cross. And the wrath of God that's supposed to fall on us, the punishment of God, comes down on, on him and his knees buckled and he's crushed under the weight of God's wrath. Who could stand again? Who could ever stand again after this sort of thing? And it says right here, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by. Now how glad ought we to be of the impossibility of Christ being held in that grave? Listen to what Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Now that final phrase, you are still in your sins, ought to send chills up your spine. You know what that means? To be still in your sins and come before the holy, holy, holy God who inhabits all of eternity. And you come before Him still in your sins. It means eternal curses for you. It means unthinkable, blinding pain forever and ever. It means torment day and night into eternity. This, this is to come to Him still in your sins. But listen to me. Christ Jesus has come as the suffering servant. He came to be crucified, crucified. Take the wrath of God for sinners like me and you. And you say, but how do you know? How do you know it really worked? Because God raised them from the dead. He loosed the pains of death. It was impossible that he could be held by. He is the Savior. Now, why was it impossible? Why was it impossible for Jesus, the strong Savior, to be Held under those pains of death, those pains of the grave. Why was it impossible? We, we tend to think, well, because Jesus is creator of the universe. He's the power of all powers. That's why he can't be held in the grave. That's what we tend to think, right? But look at what it attributes it to right here. Peter attributes the impossibility of Jesus staying in that grave. He attributes it to the faithfulness of God to his word and his eternal plan. Let me say that again. Peter attributes... The impossibility of Jesus being held in under death forever. He attributes that to God's faithfulness to his word and to his eternal plan. You see that in verse 25. Verse 24 says it's impossible that he should be held by it. And then verse 25 says for. For David says concerning him. So here's what, here's what we got. You've got, it's impossible that he'd be held in the grave. How do you know? For, and he points back to something written centuries ago that said, the Holy One will not see corruption. The Holy One will not see corruption. And so here's what you need to understand from that. This plan, this, this uh, coming of God in flesh, this death of God in flesh, this resurrection of God in the flesh is not plan B. This coming of God in flesh and His death and His resurrection, this is the eternal plan of God. This is the plan in His mind since before time began. Think about it. The death of Christ is not plan B. Remember verse 23? It said, according to His predetermined purpose and the foreknowledge of God, He was delivered up to death. It's not that God said, oh no, man sinned. Looks like I better think of a plan B and send a Savior. It's always been the plan that Christ would come and die. 
And in the resurrection, it's not plan B. It's not as if, as if God said, oh no, they killed the Son of God. They killed him. I guess I'm going to have to rescue him and raise him up. It's not plan B. And according to what David says, David knew centuries before that he would die and that the Holy One would not see corruption, but that he would rise from the grave. And so here's what this shows us. And then again, I tell you, Christ's death and his resurrection is not just a martyrdom and it's not just a rescue where he is. Christ himself is being rescued from the grave. That's not what it is. This is a fulfillment of the eternal plan of God. The plan of God to raise sinners up from the dead through the death of Jesus Christ. The plan of God to take Jesus and lift him up as Lord of all, as the God man. This is Jesus fulfilling the eternal plan plan of God. Go with me to verse 32. I want to read verse 32 through 36 again. And hear me out here. What we see here is Christ Jesus, the risen Savior, the risen one. And these verses talk about the implications of who is Christ. Who is it? If he's the risen one, if he's risen from the grave, then who is it? And read it with me. Verse 32 on. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend, the, didn't ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and and Christ. So first thing that we see. First thing that we see about the risen Savior. That if he is risen from the dead. He is the exalted one. The one that is ascended on high. As Lord of all. To sit on his throne. As king of the universe. Now you imagine what that must have been like. Do you imagine being one of his apostles? And you've seen him walk on earth again. For 40 days he walked on earth. And they saw him. And they interacted with him. And then suddenly, after that 40th day, they see Jesus, the resurrected Savior. They see Him ascend up into heaven. This is God. Can you imagine the other side of those clouds? Can you imagine all the angels, all the heavenly hosts, seeing the Son of God return to His rightful place? Could you imagine what this would be like? He has been exalted. He has been ascended. The resurrected one has ascended on high. To sit down in his throne. Only this time the angels see him. And they don't just see him as God. But as the God man. This would have been amazing. Can you imagine that? That God Almighty. The Son of God from all of eternity. Takes on flesh. And now he's fully God. Fully man. And when he dies and is resurrected. He does not lose his humanity. So for all of eternity. He is the God man. There is one from our own stock. Represented in heaven. Even now as we speak. He's alive. He's ascended. He's exalted. Oftentimes we, we sing that song, uh, Behold Our God. I know that song, Behold Our God. We sing that song often and I find myself, I find myself imagining that I see Him ascending on high. That I got, the, I got to see it. Ascending on high. And He, imagine Him walking up to those heavenly gates. And then Jesus himself, he lifts out the charge and he says, be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the king of glory shall come in. And he approaches the ancient of days and he sits down in his throne to reign as king forever. How glorious to see the risen savior like this. 
This is what we're saying. We're saying kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come and let us adore him. He's Lord. He's master. He's ruler. Another verse to look at is Romans 14, 9, where he says, Jesus died and he is risen and he lives again that he might be Lord. He's master. He's Lord. He must be worshipped. He must be obeyed. You must bow down to his majesty. And listen to me. You will either bow down to him now by his grace or you'll face him one day in judgment and your knees will be crushed by the one who wields that iron. But every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Christ Jesus is Lord. So something else we see here in verse 35. We see that he's the one patiently waiting. He's seated on his throne and he's patiently waiting until all his enemies are made his footstool. Look at verse 35. Till I make your enemies your footstool. He's patiently waiting until all his enemies are made his footstool. His patience shows his unwillingness that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is mercy. This is love. This is absolute hope for anybody still breathing in the room. Doesn't know Christ. And at the same time, there's a time that's coming when all his enemies will be put under his feet. Satan will be put under his feet. Demons will be put under his feet and all those whose lives are contrary to Christ will be put under him as his enemy. Listen to me. You right now, you are either beware of this. You are either his child redeemed by the blood of the lamb or you're an enemy of his. And all his enemies will be put under his feet. Lastly, we see this. Verse 33. I want you to think about this. All the while that all that's going on, everything that we just said is going on. He's the, he's the resurrected Savior. He's ascended on high. He's going to bury, bury all of his enemies under his feet. He is Lord of all, creator of all. Here he is. He's seated on high, seated on his throne. And he's willing to pour out his spirit for the salvation of souls. Look at verse 33. 33. Yeah, 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father. Listen. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. At the end of Peter's preaching here in Acts 2, everybody would be able to say, Christ Jesus poured out His Spirit and 3,000 souls came into the kingdom that day. This is the mercy of God. Jesus is doing this right now. By the Holy Spirit, people are coming under the conviction of their sins. By the Holy Spirit, people are fleeing the wrath to come in this day. By the Holy Spirit, people are coming out of their blindness, their spiritual blindness to see the glories of Christ, the glories of Christ crucified. And by the Holy Spirit, people are turning from their sins and putting their hope in Christ and being saved forever. God's still doing this. What mercy, what love that the one who reigns as Lord and King is patiently waiting and pouring out His Spirit for the salvation of souls. What mercy. Let me mention this. I kind of want to close, start closing out here. When you understand that Christ Jesus has been crucified, 
And he has been risen from the grave. And, he's, and you know what that means, okay? It's not just he rose back then, this, this event that happened in the past. He is risen now. When you get that, it affects the way you respond to the gospel. And first of all, I say this. You must respond to Christ crucified and Christ risen from the grave. You have to respond. There is no neutral ground. And this affects how you respond. Now, the proper saving response, the, the, the response that, that takes you from darkness to light is what we call repentance and faith. You see that right here in chapter 2, verse 38. The, the conviction of the Spirit fell on these people. They knew their sin. They say, what must we do? What must we do? And he says to them in verse 38, repent. Repent. That's the internal thing. And the external thing that he wanted to do was to be baptized. But what I want to talk to you about is that internal, that internal repentance that's supposed to go down. And I say repent and believe. If you look at verse 44, those people who repented, look what it says. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. So here are these people. They hear the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. They hear of this resurrected Christ. And, and the proper response is what these 3,000 souls made. Where they came out of darkness into light. Which was repentance and faith. Now sadly, these words have been distorted in our day. They've been very distorted. People don't know what they mean. What in the world? I, you know, they don't know what to do because I don't know what repentance and faith means. These words have been twisted. And this is part of the reason why there's so much false conversion in our culture, right? So much false conversion. The command is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the charge. And yet we have so much false conversion of people that think that they're saved, but they're not. They've never truly repented, never truly Put their faith in Christ. But listen to me. The resurrected Christ. If you lift him up and see. If your eyes are open to Christ. Risen from the dead. Ascended on high. Living right now. He knows the thoughts in your head as we speak. It helps. If you understand that. It helps. The way you think about the response of repentance and faith. And let me kind of tell you what I mean. Repentance is not crying at the altar. Repentance is not even just feeling guilty. Repentance is definitely not you just being a good boy or a good girl. Repentance is a turning to Christ. You know the one who is alive. The person of Jesus is turning away from whatever, whatever keeps you from him to Christ the living Savior. You come under his authority. And what about faith? Faith is not just intellectual assent to the claims of Christianity. Faith is not just you agreeing with a doctrinal statement. Faith is trusting Jesus. It's trusting the living, resurrected one who has died for your sins. And he is alive right now. And is placing your trust in the person of Christ. This is faith. And so in accordance with Peter. Let me plead with you for just a second. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them. You see, this wasn't all that Peter said. We've got recorded part of what Peter said, but we don't have recorded everything that Peter said. He also spoke many other words. You know what the summary? What's the summary of those many other words? Be saved from this perverse generation. And so that's my plea to every person here that doesn't know Christ. Look, if you don't know Jesus, you haven't truly turned to the person of Christ. Your trust is not in Him. Yeah, you might intellectually assent to the idea. 
or to a doctrinal statement or go to church. But if you don't truly know Christ, I'm pleading with you, be saved from this perverse generation. And this is exactly what Peter pleads with you too. Be saved. Last thing I want to say here. Go to, go to Acts 25. This is to the believers in the room. To every Christian in the room. Every, every true convert. Acts 25 verse 19. This, this is one of my... It seems random, I know. But this is one of my favorite verses in the resurrection. Okay? We're actually going to start in verse 18. And I want you to know, this is somebody talking about Paul. He's not talking to Paul. He's talking about Paul. Listen. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of the things I supposed. But they had some questions against him about their own religion. <clears throat> and about a certain Jesus who had died whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Now you think about that. The unbelievers are looking in at Paul's life and they say, he's nuts. He's crazy. Why is he crazy? Because there's a man who died named Jesus and he keeps saying that he's alive. Paul keeps saying that Jesus is alive. The guy is crazy. He's off his rocker. He has lost his mind. And so the unbelieving world looks at Paul's life and they see, man, he thinks Jesus is still alive. And so I think that's a challenging thing to every believer in this room. And I think it's an encouraging truth. Let me tell you why it's challenging. It's challenging because of this question. Does your life look like that? Does your life look like that? If the unbelieving world looks in and they, they look at your life, they say, man, she thinks Jesus is still alive. She think, he thinks that he's risen from the grave. They, it, they don't realize that he was crucified. They think he's still living. Or does your life show that it was just a little story that you come to church on Easter for? And here's why it's encouraging to every believer. This is why it's encouraging. Why was Paul able to be so full of joy in the midst of the most horrific circumstances you can imagine? Why could Paul rejoice with, with joy unspeakable and full of glory in the middle of being at prison, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of the ocean, stranded in the ocean? Why could Paul rejoice and be full of joy? Because Christ is alive. He is living and he believed that Jesus is alive and he promised I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's not a mystical promise. Christ is alive. Why was Paul able to, able to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus and do this most joyous thing where he gets to see souls brought out of darkness and brought into light, people delivered from hell forever? Why was he able to boldly proclaim that news right in the face of whatever came against him? Why? Because he believed, Matthew 28, that as he goes and makes disciples of all nations, Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. He's loved. And Paul believed him, and I want you to believe him too. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that we can come to you. God, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that does not know you, God, I pray that you'd open their eyes. 
God, if there's anybody here that does not know you, God, open their eyes that they might see your glory, your resurrected glory, that you are king. And I pray, God, through your word, you speak to their hearts even now and save souls. And God, for those who are yours, your children in this room, I pray for your children in this room that you help us to live a life that brings glory to your name. You are our living Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.